This is Soccer City, and this is the final episode of Season 1 together here at WNYE, where we brought you every match live for the New York City Football Club while scouring the streets of this city for a game and stories on this weekly program. The heartwarming account of a homeless refugee from the Ivory Coast was told and how soccer in school saved his life. That was Episode 6. We're going to recapture some of those moments and share a happy update. Soccer. It was born in the streets. And the director of Street Football World, Mike Geddes, he'll have his say today. The MLS season concluded on Saturday. And my broadcast partner for the NYCFC matches, Matty Lawrence, he'll be here to talk about that and the importance of New York City re-signing central defender Maxime Cheneau. I met Mafuz Sumari in April of this year. He'd been in the States for only a year and a half, still homeless, but with hope thanks in part to the Downtown United Soccer Club, or DUSK. We met before one of his training sessions at Pier 40 in Manhattan. Listen closely as he talks about escaping the violence of his homeland. I have a lot of friends in the Civil War. They get killed, they get shot. A lot of friends die, so I feel so lucky. I get here safely. It's not easy at all, but like, at least I'm, I'm alive. I have an opportunity to go to school. It's not really, I don't have any, I don't have home, I don't have house, I don't have no money. At least I have school. I have something I can focus I have something like that can change my life and that can change other people's life. So, so, so you don't have a home, you say. So how do you get by? How, how do you survive and, and, and where do you stay? Make friends by playing soccer. Sometimes I... Uh, after school, I have to call them, oh, can I come spend the night? Yes, they say yes, and I get to meet some people, and they really like me, I just go there. And he goes there, but not before finishing his schoolwork, at about midnight at a local coffee shop that has Wi-Fi. After his mother sent him to the States, she passed away at the hands of an abusive husband. It was something that Mafuz witnessed on a daily basis when he was home, but he managed to find strength through his mother. The time she, she passed away, I used to I used to be someone like I give up basically I mostly I, I give up. I'm like, oh I, I give up. I just remember my mom sent me here for a for a better life. I can't give up. If I give up, those kids back those kids like who have the same experience like me, they have 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 to be the one who have to show show them the way, I have to be the one who have to like do not give him like it's gonna be harder. You don't need to be rich. You don't need to have anything in this life. But, like you can push up. Like you have, you have to believe in yourself. You have to value your life. So that's that's why I didn't give up. And I want to do more. I know it's gonna be harder. The, this is nothing. I know in the future it's gonna be harder. But like I want I want to still do it so I can give I can give me a better life and the others too. Cause I care a lot. The more, one of my things I care a lot about people. Well, despite his own hardship, Mafus, he has a strong desire to help others. And he's in that position in large part due to Dusk and his coach, Kevin McCarthy, and his teammates there, plus the stability of school. Soccer means a lot for me. Because like, even when I, f- I feel so bad, I sh- when I get into the field, I can feel so bad. But, like just hear your coach, your coach voice screaming at you, no matter what, no matter who you are, no matter what's your talent, you have to give everything. That's like that's how life life is. If sometimes like I can't have a bad day when I come here. I'm I'm gonna feel so bad. The only thing the the coach wanna the coach wanna tell me, fight fight. Like that's how life is. 
to like my coach really inspire me when i hear his voice something like i can do batting but when i hear his voice i have to do something i have to work for the end he showed me you have to work for the team team first so like sometimes i, I was like selfish I, i'm telling about I, I selfish but like since i meet kevin team first like so that's why i want to try to do everything that's for the team and that's for him so i will do everything for this team i will do everything for him because like basically this this team changed my life a lot at the time of this interview mafus was a high school senior arriving less than two years earlier not knowing the language he was accepted by multiple universities. He decided on Fairfield University in Connecticut, where he focused on his studies the first semester and will now join the Division I soccer team for the spring season of 2019. Mafuz was also awarded a scholarship by the Goals and Glory Foundation for his contributions to their website, where young athletes across the country share their stories of adversity. Here's a portion of Mafuz's entry. 5 a.m., the streets of the South Bronx have become familiar with the song of my feet running all the way to Freeman Street to go to my favorite place, school. My alarm clock has become my mother, waking me up and pushing me out the door. My Puma backpack is my best friend. To it, I entrust my whole life, my soccer cleats, books, pencils, and a flash drive for my videos. The backpack became my pillow and companion while I bounce from house to house. 5 a.m., is the beginning of my journey, the journey I've nicknamed Hope, Mafus Samari, who has played a lot of street soccer in his life. That's a good thing. Mike Geddes is the managing director of Street Football World USA. The founder of Street Football World is a German named Jürgen Griesbach, and Mike will help us take it from here. And interestingly, the inspiration comes from the U.S. or something that happened in the U.S., which is that very famous a game in the 94 World Cup at the Rose Bowl where USA beat Colombia. And one of those goals was an own goal scored by a guy called Andres Escobar, the Colombian captain who was subsequently assassinated, uh, which is the subject of a of a great ESPN 30 for 30 on that story. Um, and our founder was actually a family friend of Andres Escobar and um, was very affected by his murder, as were a lot of people in soccer, because... Andres was known for not only being a great soccer player, but also a great humanitarian. He was very famous in Medellin for using his celebrity as a soccer player to help people less fortunate than himself. And the fact that he was murdered was this huge blow to the soccer community. And for our founder, you know, because a lot of people were blaming it on the fact that he scored an own goal. I mean, that wasn't quite the reason. It was a, it was really a symptom of what was going on in Colombia at the time, which was this terrible epidemic of gang violence, um, which was affecting predominantly young men. And our founder decided to use that moment as a way of using the sport, which has this incredible power in a positive way. So he just decided at that time to drop what he was doing. He was studying for a PhD in sociology. He quit that the next day. And he said, I'm going to try and use the sport of soccer to do something positive in Andres's memory and to try to address this terrible social issue which is affecting Colombia. Um, so he created a program which used soccer to try and reduce levels of gang violence. Uh, and the reason he used soccer was simple. All these kids who were getting caught up in this issue, talking about young boys aged 12 to 18, um, no stable family structure, they weren't in school. The only positive thing they had in their life was soccer, and they would play it any chance they got. Um, what he did was, which was quite innovative at the time, he didn't just give them the chance to play soccer. He changed the rules of the game to, in order to 
teach them lessons that were going to help them off the field. So, for example, they took away the referees. So any disagreements these guys had when they were playing, they had to resolve it through dialogue. Um, he made the games co-ed so that they had a different way of interacting with women and girls. Um, and it was all designed to basically teach them without realizing they were being taught and keep them in the program. And it was very, very successful. And, and what our founder realized was that, or what he thought was that if I've had this success here in Medellin, Colombia, the soccer is so universal and so popular that there must be other people who had the same idea. So he started looking around and he saw that sure enough in almost any country you can think of in any social situation where young people are at risk from whatever social issue it might be, gang violence, racism, drugs, alcohol, landmines, HIV AIDS, someone has decided to use soccer to try and address it for the same reasons as our founder did. It's cheap, it's effective, it motivates kids like nothing else, and it's a very powerful platform for social education. But what our founder noticed was that none of these organizations were working together. They were all independent nonprofits, lacking resources, making the same mistakes, reinventing the wheel. And he felt that if we came together as a collective movement, that we could be much, much more powerful than just the sum of our parts. So Street Football World is at its core a network of organizations in different countries around the world that have independently decided that soccer is the best way or one of the best ways to affect social change amongst young people. And our role as Street Football World is to bring that movement together and to try to use that collective momentum to influence the bigger soccer industry, to try to get people like FIFA, UEFA, professional athletes, brands more engaged in supporting the work that soccer can do to make the world a better place. When you, uh, Mike, talked about uh, how uh, he uh, took away the referees and you had to solve your own issues, it reminds me, uh, I was in East Harlem earlier this year at a gymnasium during the winter, and there was a football three program going on, which is one of your programs, and and I remember the the coaches gathering the players. They were young people, eight, nine, ten years old, and they had to – they, they essentially made their own rules and had to stick by them. And if somebody broke the rule, they would have to be called out. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, and, you know, Football 3 for, is what came out of that original program in Colombia. Um, what we did was we kind of took all these different solutions that people had found in different parts of the world, and we sort of codified them into a handbook, which took all these learnings about how football can address gender equality or bringing together different ethnic groups And we made this thing called Football Free, which is basically just a way of playing soccer, um, which teaches whatever social issue you're trying to transmit. And we made that freely available to everyone in our network because the whole point of the network is if if you've got a program in Medellin and these guys have a program in East Harlem, but they're using the same sport, they can learn from each other. So it, it makes it a tremendously powerful network in that way. Um, and it's it's awesome to us to see because, you know, especially if you look at the U.S. and the rise of people using soccer as a tool for social change, there's a vast amount of global expertise that they can draw on to say, oh, hey, well, I'm working with, you know, these kids in an underserved area, and there's 100 people out there who've been doing this for 10 years longer than me. I'm just going to take the best bits of everything they're doing, and it's going to make my work even more effective. So that's that's great to hear. It's something that we that we see a lot, um, and it kind of reinforces this this understanding that soccer and its universality and its popularity makes it a really powerful vehicle for, for social change on a global scale. 
Well, it was a, a, quite a gathering. Uh, we're with Mike Geddes, uh, the managing director for Street Football World, uh, a couple of weeks ago in, uh, in New York for this uh, uh, Beyond the World Cup Impact and Legacy. And it's, it's a, it's a lead-up to the 2026 United bid, U.S., Canada, and Mexico. So uh, it appears that you're setting the tone early. Uh, people like uh, Kyle Martino, National Board Chair of Street Soccer USA, Dwayne D. Rosario, uh, Tim Parker was there representing the Red Bulls and, and his uh, uh, and his contributions to uh, society and the youth. Lori Lindsay, the former U.S. women's national team player, among others. And there was Rita Riccabelli Karate contributed to the successful United bid for 26 as the director of sustainability. So it was a wide range of individuals. But again, starting so early. So uh, I would imagine that's intentional. Yeah, and for us, you know, it, it's not early. <laughs> I mean, we're eight years out, and that is, I, that is for us the minimum that people should be thinking about this social legacy stuff. I mean, we've we've been involved in the World Cup um, and the European Championships from a social legacy perspective since 2010. Uh, we were actually asked by FIFA to help them create what became their main corporate social responsibility program called. Football for Hope at the time. Um, it's since become the FIFA Foundation. And as part of that, um, we and, and myself personally were very involved in the official social legacy campaign of the 2010 FIFA World Cup, which involved building physical infrastructure of education, public health, and soccer across the African continent. And, and we've since worked with FIFA on two other World Cups and on, with UEFA on the social legacy of their events. And, you know, this idea of legacy of mega sporting events is one which has been. Um, critiqued a lot and looked at a lot over the years. When we talk about our work in that, we're not really talking about building infrastructure like stadiums or airports or anything like that. We're talking about specifically how do you ensure that the, these mega events have an impact at our level, what we consider you know, our level, which is the use of sport and soccer not to develop athletes or make money, but to serve social programs and create better citizens. Yeah, you need to start early and also there is a tremendous opportunity to be found by looking at work which is already going on on the ground. Um, and I think that um, there is a particular opportunity which I've seen since being in the States um, around 2026 um, to really kind of bring together and capitalize on some phenomenal work which is going on and has been going on in communities across the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And I think that the discussion that we were having was around that particular opportunity. And I think, again, it's a unique situation here because at the same time, you have this intersection of people saying, you know, the game needs to grow. Um, and, and oftentimes what they're saying is the game needs to grow in the same communities as these organizations are working. So we, we just felt um, that there was an opportunity to bring some people together, have a discussion about it, look at what is already happening out there, highlight some of the successes, um, the organizations that people like Kyle are supporting, Street Soccer USA doing incredible work, um, and, and just say, look, we, you need to think about these things now if you're really going to have an impact that goes way beyond the tournament. So whilst um, it's, it's unclear what's going to happen with the legacy component of the bid, um, they haven't constituted the bodies which will be responsible for executing the World Cup. We thought that we could already start having our conversation about the work that goes on at our level because... Um, I think it's important that everyone um, sees the opportunity. And, and oftentimes for us in the nonprofit sector, we don't have the luxury to think long term because most of the time our, you know, our focus is on keeping the lights on from week to week. So at Street Football World, what we try to do 
to support organizations like Street Soccer USA, Soccer Without Borders, America Scores, um, Soccer in the Streets and others is to think about that big picture. You know, think about things which individual organizations maybe can't on their own. Think about how to have these conversations now so that it can be on people's radars. They know about the opportunities that were out there and hopefully um, influence things in a way whereby ultimately there's going to be more benefit accrued for um, you know, the people in our sector who have been on the ground 24-7, day in, day out, for years and years and years, and ultimately, you know, really should be the ones both contributing to any social legacy and benefiting from it as well. well uh, Mike, how do you prioritize? I'm sure you have this uh, list of things that you want to try to accomplish between now and then and certain projects, but how do you prioritize, like, what communities you try to touch, uh, that sort of thing? Because this word sustainability, well, look, Rita was a director of sustainability. I'd like to define that word as it pertains to this, but that seems to be the challenge all the time. You have something, you have a good idea. There we were in this brilliant forum with a lot of great ideas, but it's always like, what happens next? And how do you sustain that and grow it and make it better by then and then continue to improve it? Is that a big challenge? Mm. Definitely. And sustainability can mean a lot of things. It's one of these terms um, which is often used in different contexts. And I think in Rita's context, it, it, it has a very broad, um, a very broad definition. And she, she, she can obviously speak, speak more to this. But in the context of World Cups, it's often referring to many things like supply chains and environmental footprint and social impacts, maybe just one part of that. In our context, what we at Street Football World have often talked about is sustainability in our sector. How do we how do we move beyond the current paradigm whereby, you know, we are all nonprofits struggling for resources and 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 that kind of restricts our ability to scale up and think long term and be as effective as we can be. And that is actually what led to us creating a couple of um, a couple of initiatives which specifically were designed to address this challenge and the, the kind of imperative behind this was us looking at our sector, which is 180 organizations across the world in 75 countries, reaching about 2 million young people every year, doing incredible work, but with no resources. And on the other side of like our world, you have a football or soccer industry, which is making billions of dollars. And currently you would, you would question whether enough of that value is going back into the communities that give it its power. So, that was our thinking when we created something called Common Goal, um, which is a movement we initiated to get every professional soccer player, male and female, to give 1% of their salary to a global fund for social good. Uh, Tim Parker of the Red Bulls was present at the event because he was our latest player to join, and we're very happy to have him on board. And the idea was to try to disrupt or, or change the existing industry just a little bit in such a way that it would allow for our field to become more sustainable. So if you have this, um, this function built into the business model, so it doesn't depend on individual kind of whims or desires of, oh, I'm going to give something back because I need a tax write-off this year, it's actually built in, then you can start to think about sustainability because you have predictable income streams coming into your coming into your sector. And, and for us, we've been delighted to see the progress that, that Common Gold has made over the last year. We've, we've had more success than we, than, we, than we hoped. We're getting close on 100 athletes now. We'd obviously like to do more, but now we're seeing 
um, you know, the president of UEFA signing up. We're seeing like more more people from around just the athletes themselves signing up. And we, we have a lot of hope that this can help us create that kind of sustainability. We can create a bigger impact. There are over 100 athletes involved in this 1% giving back, including Juan Mata, Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino, Matt Hummels, Giorgio Chiellini. Great stuff for the managing director of Street Football World USA, Mike Geddes. The New York City Football Club announced on Saturday that Maxime Cheneau, the French-born Luxembourg international center back, had re-signed with the club on the day of the MLS Cup final where over 73,000 strong at Mercedes-Benz Stadium roared their approval as Atlanta United captured the MLS championship in just their second season. To discuss both, I want to welcome back my uh, broadcast partner for the NYCFC games this year, and he's a former pro center back, played for Millwall and Crystal Palace. So who better to talk about Maxime Cheneau than Matty Lawrence? Matty, welcome. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you, Glenn. Uh, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing well, and I'm uh, – Personally, in terms of uh, the structure of the back line and the overall uh, personnel for New York City, I think it was uh, a strong indication that the back line will be uh, settled uh, again, maybe even more so with the return of Maxime Cheneau. I know you're fond of him, but uh, tell us why. Yeah, I, I like Cheneau a lot. Uh, I think he's probably... Right up there with the best centre-halves in MLS. I think that the partnership he has forged with Carlens over the last season, maybe the last 18 months, has just really gelled very nicely. I think it's probably only second in MLS to Parker and Long, Aaron Long, obviously, and Tim Parker at the New York Red Bulls. Uh, I know that Atlanta United have some good centre-halves, but predominantly they play as a trio, so I don't want to compare duos to trios, so I'm just sticking with the New York Red Bulls guys. Possibly the sporting KC pairing of, of Beasley and Aparo is up there. But look, now there's Cheneau and, and Carlens, all signed and sealed for 2019 MLS season. I think we can consider them certainly in, in the top three in MLS and it's a massive positive for NYCFC. For, for me, as a team, you need to have solid foundations. And in Collins and Cheneau and Tinnaholm to the right and probably Ben Sweat to the left, they have certainly one of the best back fours. I'm talking predominantly back fours here. Probably one of the best back fours in MLS. Um, what do I think of him personally as a player? I think he's a very good defender. And I think in times when world football in general, defending is kind of going out of fashion. I think Cheneau is somebody who defends first and foremost and plays football almost secondary. Uh, he's that guy with a, a ball magnet on his head, I would say. Any time a cross comes into the box, it seems to land on his head. And, and that's not by luck. That's because he positions himself very well. And, and he puts himself in the right positions and rarely gets beaten to the ball by opposing centre forwards or, or midfield runners. So for me, it's a, a very, very important step for NYCFC to secure his signing. I know that he had slight family issues and, uh, and, and problems off the field. And, and I know, having played the game for 16, 17 years myself, that, that you perform at your best when you're happy off the pitch. So for me, Chano re-signing means he's now happy off the pitch as well as resolved any issues he had. So we're going to see the best of Cheneau, uh next season. And I think that Cheneau and Carlens can only go and get better and better. I, I think the longer you play with a, with a centre-half partner, you 
learn their foibles, you learn how they play as a centre-half, and, and, and it can only be a positive. They, they will, uh, I guarantee, they will get better and better, providing they steer clear of injury and, and suspensions. Uh, I think, as I say, I, I think it's a massive plus for NYCFC. And I really like to know, being, being a former centre-half, uh, he's a real defender. He's a real player's player as well. I, I, I think... The players around him will enjoy playing with him. Uh, and I think he leads by example. He may not be the most vocal of players, but you only need to look at him, see, see the way he holds himself on the pitch and on the training ground. And as a young pro, or maybe even as an experienced pro, you can look at him and, and, and just take almost solitude in the fact that he's there in your dressing room, in your locker, locker room with you. He's, uh, he's, a, he's a real competitor. And on top of that, a, a first-class defender and a very good footballer as well, Glenn. Well, you mentioned Atlanta United, and you think of Michael Parkhurst and Leandro Gonzalez Perez, Atlanta, defeating Portland for the MLS Cup Championship on Saturday. Quite a story there. Parkhurst and Gonzalez Perez playing some of their best football down the stretch and in the playoffs, getting through New York City, the Red Bulls, and then Portland. Quite a story there in Atlanta, second year. 73,000-plus a, a, a finals record, all kinds of attendance records, in a city where they weren't even certain how it was going to go in terms of the support. So really amazing stuff there. Yeah, you have to credit the ownership group and then everybody that, that, that the owner, Arthur Blank, brought in below him, whether that be Carlos Bocanegra, Darren Eels, obviously then on down to Tata Martino himself. But we all know that... Money is almost no object down at Atlanta United. We know that they've spent a, a lot more money, I would envisage, than many other clubs, not only in transfer fees, but also wages. But we also know that they have to work within the framework of MLS guidelines. So they haven't broken any rules. There's, there's nothing untoward there. And just because you throw money at a project, it doesn't mean it's going to be successful. You have to bring in the right men to oversee the project which Atlanta United have done. You have to bring in the right head coach, which in Tata Martino they definitely had. And then on top of that, you have to go out there and you have to scout players and you have to bring the best players in. Yes, they've spent money on those players, but look, they brought in some of the best players into MLS that, that it's ever seen. Joseph Martinez is breaking goal-scoring records left, right and centre. Miguel Almiron is one of the best players we've ever seen in MLS. And, and it looks as though those two guys may move on. I think we're almost positive that Almiron will move on. But they're already going, moving to their next stage. They've already secured Gonzalo Pitti Martinez to come in. They've, it looks as though they've uh, spent the 15 million euro transfer fee to, to trigger the escape clause in Martinez's contract with River Plate. So they're bringing in a tried and tested first-class footballer. And I, and I think you have to credit uh, Atlanta United with that foresight and that ability just to, to build not only a good team on the pitch, but a very, very good team off the pitch. I've spoken with Carlos Bocanegra in, in various interviews, and he just comes across as a very creditable character, somebody who knows exactly what they want. He had a very good professional career, obviously, himself, not only in Europe, but also for the U.S. men's national team. So you, they've brought the right guys in, as I say, on and off the pitch. And I, 
And first and foremost, I think, Glenn, we all enjoy watching Atlanta United play. It's not the fact that they win. It's the fact that they play some very attractive football. And you can't but fail to sit down when they're on the TV or when they're, they come into your city and go to the game and watch them live. They play fast-flowing, attractive, attacking football. And yes, you're right as well. Not only that, but they have a good base. They have a decent goalkeeper in Brad Duzan, obviously, and they have a very good good centre-halves in, whether it be Lorenzo Witz dropping back there or Gonzalez Perez in there or Parkhurst. As you say, I, I like what Parkhurst brings. He, for me, is that, again, archetypal player's player. He loves to defend and he's a, a very good defender and we've seen the best of him this year. So, Atlanta United are, are the perfect, I guess, expansion project that to, to look at. LAFC are following in their footsteps, obviously. We're going to see FC Cincinnati coming in in 2019 too. You, there's, there's nothing you could do but look at Atlanta United and their framework to take examples of, of how you should lead an expansion team. Matty Lawrence, I look forward to our partnership in 2019, man. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And that'll do it for the 40th and final episode of Season 1. Soccer City will return in 2019. And I want you to watch out for and subscribe to the Soccer City Spotlight podcast on TuneIn and iTunes over the next couple of months. From the passion of Ray Hudson to the racism endured by Garth Crooks to the joy of sitting with a Mexican couple from Queens as they watch their beloved L tree in the World Cup. And also City High School students learning the art of interview and broadcast and contributing to this very program. It's been a pleasure. And I want to thank New York City Media, the Mayor's Office, NYU, and New York City FC. This is Glenn Crooks. Have a fantastic holiday and a very happy new year.